Thanks, Amanda. It's good to see you all here this morning. We are continuing this series to know, fear, and worship God. That's the big goal, to grow in our knowledge of God, to grow in our our fear of him, our awe and respect of him, um, which pulls us into a, a, a deeper faith and a deeper walk in him. So today we are continuing the story of, of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, the beginnings of the, the nation of Israel. We read this morning a little bit out of the passage where God is going to um, destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. But I think sometimes when we, when we read these texts about Abraham and Sarah, it's, it's a lot of text. And I think sometimes it's hard to relate with these two characters. There's no commands or admonitions to us. And they tell these stories and there's no clear expectation about what we're supposed to get out of it. But, and, and so I think we sometimes have some, some disconnect as we read and try to see ourselves. But we're gonna look today at several instances where, where Abraham and Sarah had lapses of faith. And it's through these lapses of faith that we see in the text in their lives that I think that we can, I think we can increasingly relate to them. I think we can see ourselves in them. And when I say um, lapses of faith, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the doubts that we may have before coming to Christ. You know, does God exist? Does God love me? I'm talking about being in a place where there's firmly faith in God and there's a devotion to him and his purposes and there was an effort to follow him. And yet there are these times where we just don't believe what God says. We don't believe that God is going to do what he said he would do. We don't believe that God is able to do what he's able to do. So if we, look at, if we look at the calling that the text gives, that God told Abraham, I just want to read a portion again from what was read this morning. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so there are two aspects of this calling. The first thing is the promise. And it's an amazing promise. In fact, the first time God spoke to Abraham, Abraham didn't have to do anything. If you, if you kind of take a step, we become familiar with these passages, but he said, Abraham, leave your, well, he had to leave. He had to leave his household and leave his homeland. But then he said, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give your offspring this land. I'm going to prosper you. Uh, nations will come from you. Kings will come from you. Anybody that, that, that wars against you, I will defeat. Anybody that comes alongside to support you, I will prosper them as well as you. So, so it's a great promise, and it really captured Abraham's heart because he didn't have anything. He left his, his, his father had moved them from their home country, and then his father died on the trip. He had no home. His wife was barren. He had no children. He was not a rich man when he left Ur. 
So this amazing promise that God gave him really compelled him to follow. It drew his heart. But then there's a second aspect. And the second aspect isn't revealed to Abraham and Sarah until they're along the journey. And the second aspect to their calling is to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And so the call began with the promise of this great, these, these great things that really no person could say no to. And then the training in the righteousness began right away. And so when we say righteousness and justice, again, two terms, very important throughout all of Scripture. Righteousness is this, is this way of living in the world where everything is right between us and the Lord and us and other people. So it's, it's really the ideal human life is what righteousness is. And yes, there's, there, there are moral codes to it, but it's, it's much more than that. It's, it's what it means to live and flourish as a human being where, every, where you have a right relationship with God and a right, right relationship with people. And justice in a fallen world, justice are the efforts that we make. Justice are the efforts that God makes to bring things to a place of righteousness and goodness. So God is calling Abraham to be an example of what righteousness and justice is in this world, the way of the Lord. So it's going to be a contrasting nation to the nations of the world. And so God begins this training process. There's this compelling promise for good, some great things. And that's what keeps Abraham and Sarah in this process of training for righteousness and justice. Remember, in, in uninstructed humanity, so we've gone through the stories of Genesis 1 through 11, and we saw what uninstructed humanity does. Humanity left to themselves uh, with, with a really long lifespan just continues to bring destruction and suffering and violence to itself. And so uninstructed humanity has a number of characteristics that God has got to train out of Abraham and Sarah. He's got to train them in righteousness. He's got to train them in his way. And he's got to press out of them the way of the world. And so the first, the first thing, the first things that God has got to teach Abraham and Sarah in are things about what it means to be a man and a woman, what it means to be a husband and a wife, what it means to be a father and a mother. If he's going to be the father of a great nation, it's got to start with his household. A friend of mine, he's deceased, and a friend of Anna's family for many, many years, his name is Ted Ward, he wrote a book, Values Begin at Home. And it's just a story of, I mean, it's just a book about the importance of home life in the, the transmission of the way of the Lord to children. And so Abraham and Sarah have got to get it figured out what it means to be righteous as a man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother. Because uninstructed humanity has shown that it's polygamous, it's misogynist, sexual abuse is rampant, there are misplaced identities, 
in terms of what it means to be a man and a woman and a husband and a wife, etc. There is self-protection before the care of the vulnerable. So you know, Abraham lies twice about who his wife is, and he gives his wife away. So he's protecting himself through lying, nonetheless. Lying to preserve himself with disregard to others, Sarah, his wife, or even the kingdoms that he was lying to. And so there are three episodes where, where God is training Abraham and Sarah about what it means to be man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother. So again, two times Abraham gives his wife away to another man, and a third time Sarah instructs her servant girl to sleep with her husband. And as you're going through these texts, um, it, it is oftentimes repeated, Abraham, her husband, Sarah, his wife. This, these, the, it's very emphatic that what's going on here uh, shouldn't be going on here. Knowing what we know from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 of what husbands and wives uh, ideally should be, at least in terms of, of some very specific ideals. And they did, not, they did not receive the fulfillment of the promise that God made them, I will give you an offspring, and I will give that offspring these possessions. They did not receive the offspring. They did not have a child for much, much later after God had made the promises to them. And it wasn't until after this third trial or this third test or this third episode where Abraham once again gave his wife away to a foreign enemy whom he feared would kill him if he didn't release her to be the husband, to be the wife of another man. And now, as you, one of the challenges that we have in the text is, you know, when you're going through these episodes... And you see them make these massive mistakes, but the text doesn't say anything like, oh, and Abraham learned his lesson. The text isn't doing that. The Hebrew, this, this Hebrew text um, is, is written in a way to generate questions in the readers. And you read through this and you're like, what in the world is I supposed to get out of that? And so a lot of the conclusions are not immediately obvious. A lot of the applications aren't immediately obvious. And so you go through these and you're like, well, there's not a whole lot of commentary on how I'm supposed to think about this episode. But if you think about what God is doing from the very beginning of his work, he is going, he has promised an offspring. He has promised an offspring that is gonna bring life to all of the world. And so the things that you see the text concerning itself with are things related to offspring, are things related to having children and raising children and transmitting, as we see here in the text, Abraham is going to be a great nation and who is going to train his children and the following generations on what it means to walk in the way of the Lord. And so... There are like 40 years of Abraham's life that we're exposed to. And most of the lessons have to do with what it means to be a man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother. But it's not the only thing. If he's going to be the head of a nation, he also has to be trained 
in some matters of justice, in some matters of governance. And God uses this situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities close to the area that they had settled in. And these cities became increasingly wicked. And there's an outcry to God for justice. The text doesn't say where the outcry is coming from. But God and two angels, Yahweh and two angels, come down, and they're going to observe. They're going to spy out these two cities. What kinds of wickedness is there? And God says, shall we hide from Abraham what we're about to do? Since he is going to be the father of a great nation and train up the next generations in the way of the Lord. So there is something about this episode with Sodom and Gomorrah that instructs Abraham about what it means to be a nation governed by righteousness and justice. And so Abraham is concerned because he knows his nephew, Lot, lives in these cities. And he pleads with God and gets, gets Yahweh to a point where Yahweh is the, is the actual personal name for God. So I'll use those interchangeably throughout this series. So he pleads with Yahweh back and forth a number of times and, and gets Yahweh to the point where he has agreed to not destroy the cities if he finds 10 righteous people. And so God visits Sodom and Gomorrah, the two angels with him, and they see injustice, and they see a complete lack of righteousness. And you see it in two things. First of all, you see it in, in the contrast between how Abraham and Lot welcomed the strangers, because the text calls them strangers. The strangers came upon Abraham and Sarah in their tents, and they made a feast for them. The strangers came to the city where Lot was at, and he brought them in and provided food. When the strangers were in the city, the city treated them as vulnerable and weak and tried to take advantage of them. So the first thing we see is a, 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 an oppression to the stranger an oppression to the vulnerable, because there's this huge gang of men, and they're going to take advantage of these two individual people that would not have had the strength to overcome them had they not been angels. The second thing you see is, is typically what we, is what we understand to be characteristics of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is their sexual immorality. So literally, the text says, and I hadn't noticed it till this time, reading through and studying, preparing for this time, it says, to the last man of the city. So it wasn't just like there was a gang of men hanging out in the town square, and when these two strangers come, this gang of men, literally they tried to gang rape these two guys. So it's not just a small gang of 15 or 20 guys. The text says, to the last man of the city. So every male, at least, I have to check them and see that word if it's just, I think it's just men. <laughs> but it, every single man of the city, presumably, okay, even the future sons-in-laws that were going to marry his daughters because they weren't at the household. So even the two men that were going to marry Lot's daughters 
came against these two strangers to gang rape them. And Lot's attempts to correct the gang made it things even worse. And here's where you get a picture. Here is righteous Lot trying to stop the unrighteous, but one man cannot save a city. One man cannot save a city. God brings burning sulfur and destroys the cities. Lot and his wife and two daughters are the only four people that are saved out of the cities. So the angels take them, might be familiar with the story. They're told not to turn back. Lot's wife turns back to see the burning cities. She's turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, They run into the mountains. It's Lot and his two daughters. The two daughters get their dad drunk. They get Lot drunk. And the older daughter sleeps with her father the next, the, the, that night. Then the next night, the younger daughter sleeps with her father. From those uh, incestuous relations come the Ammonites and the Moabites who were always in conflict with Israel from then on. And the interesting thing is, or an interesting thing, and this is one of those things where you ask questions. The text says that Abraham woke up early the next morning to the the smell of burning sulfur and burning cities and to the sights of fire and smoke. The text never says whether Abraham found out if his nephew had been preserved. Abraham moves away because he doesn't want to live in an area that smells like burning sulfur. And Lot is up in the mountains with his two daughters. We never know. Abraham never knows. At least the text doesn't say that Abraham found out that his nephew was safe. Because Abraham had gone to great lengths to keep his nephew safe. So here, at the, so put yourself in Abraham's shoes. You see these two cities burning, and your relatives lived in those cities. Did God preserve the cities? No. So God must not have found 10 righteous people. So here you have Abraham learning that justice might be served, even even with the possibility of the cost of a few righteous people. It doesn't seem right. And we know that God saved Lot and his wife and two daughters. We know that. We know God preserved them. But the cities were destroyed. And so Abraham, is, he, he is learning what it means to be a husband. He is learning what it means to be a father. Sarah is learning what it means to be a woman and a wife and a mom. And so they are in this training process because the third thing I want to point out here is that when God came and visited them before he went to Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't only want to bring Abraham into this process of doing justice in these two cities. He also wanted to bring Sarah into the training as well. So God had told Abraham in the episode before in the text, you're going to have a child from your own body, and that child is going to be from Sarah's body. And that is when Abraham laughed. He laughed at God. 
And that's why Isaac's name is, their child's name is Isaac, because Isaac means he laughed. And so the text doesn't tell us whether Abraham went back and told these, this news to Sarah. Because when God visits Abraham and Sarah, God asks, hey, where is Sarah at? Now, Abraham is talking to God, Yahweh. Behind him, the text is clear, it's behind him. Behind him are the tents. And he says, well, Sarah, she's in the tent. Well, Sarah was actually standing in the doorway of the tent, listening and seeing everything that was being said. And so God could see that Abraham was right there. Excuse me, God could see that Sarah was right there. And so God says to Sarah, you are going to have a child from your own body. Not from your servant's body, but from your own body. And she laughed as if she had never heard it before. And so you're like, Abraham, this is big news. Did you not go home and tell your wife the big news? Now, we all know as husbands that we fail to tell our wives whatever big news that we hear. But Abraham doesn't seem to have told her. She responds with this surprise, and she laughs just like her husband did. And, Ab- and, and God asks her, is anything too difficult for Yahweh? Is anything too difficult for me? You know, the, the culture, the culture, typically cultures, uninstructed culture, you don't see the same emphasis and the importance on the development and education and training of women. We see this in India. In India, we're start, we were working on this. We're working this project, and I'm excited. In January, Vinay, the leader of this network of of church plants that we're helping out in India, northern India, he will be here in January. He's so excited to come and just give thanks and a report of of what's going on. But one of the things that he's really excited about is that um, in contrary, contrary to much of the other Christian culture, the, the women are as engaged in the training as the men are. They are experiencing what it means to be trained in righteousness and justice, and they are experiencing a great deal of fruit and joy in their lives, in their marriages, in their relationships with their kids, Anyway, Vinay's going to come and tell us all about it. But you can see here in this story, God is not just training Abraham. God is training and working with Sarah as well. He leaves them as anything too difficult for Yahweh. And so, in fact, when God confronts Sarah, because God says, you are going to have a child from your own body. And she's like, my body is dead. She literally says that, my body is dead. And then she laughs. And God says, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. (laughs) She's standing right there. And in the presence of Yahweh. I mean, I don't know how you respond when people just flat out lie to your face and you know it's a flat out lie and they know it's a flat out lie. I usually get pretty angry at that. But here's, here's Yahweh. Here's the Lord God. He just says, no, you laughed. And he walks on. 
Are we any different than Abraham and Sarah? So God has given us a calling. God has given us a calling. In fact, our calling is tied to Abraham's calling. We are the nation of God's people from Abraham. We are his offspring, birthed by the offspring, the man Jesus Christ. We are called into the way of the Lord. In fact, we see in the book of Acts that the, it's called the way of the Lord. And we are called to have ordered households, just like God was training Abram and Sarah in. We are called to vocations and to work in order to bless humanity, in order to bless the cities and nations that we live in. Just as Abraham and Sarah were called to be a blessing to the nations, that's part of our calling. We are called to grow and build up God's family, which is the local church. This is our calling. We are called to be witnesses of Christ in all that we do, which sometimes brings transformation into the hearts and lives and minds of people and families and neighborhoods and cities. But sometimes our witness and testimony brings judgment like it did in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're, we're kind of entering into a season where that's going to be increasingly the case, where our witness and testimony will be met with the same kind of scoffing as it did in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what does it take to accomplish our calling? It takes faith that God is able to do what he says that he will do. Now, we don't, God hasn't given us, Yahweh hasn't given us any specific promises to any of us as individuals, maybe, maybe through individual prophets to individual peoples at times. But we don't have this promise like Sarah had, I'm going to bring your dead body back to life so that it can give birth to a son. We don't have those kinds of specific promises in the scriptures to us, but we do have these. The Spirit is at work to fulfill God's purposes, and God's purposes will be fulfilled through the Holy Spirit. That's a promise. Well, what is the Spirit doing? Unifying local churches so that we can reflect what it means to be the people of God following the way of the Lord. We're, we are unified in mind. We are unified in truth. We are unified in mission. That's what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit says that, that the Lord, Jesus says that the Spirit will bring unity, strength, and beauty to our marriages. That's a promise. It's not a maybe. This is what the Spirit is doing. And the same thing to our families. Unity, strength, and beauty to the lives that we have as families with our children and our extended families. God says that he will provide for all of our needs. Jesus says, do not worry about what you're going to wear. Jesus says, do not worry about where you're going to live. Jesus says, do not worry about what you're going to eat. The Lord will take care of all of these things. Jesus says that the Spirit will bring life to our mortal bodies so that we are able to overcome sin. Sexual immorality, substance abuse, anger, all of the sins that we commit as husbands and wives and parents and siblings and co-workers, all of these things, God has promised that his spirit will work in us to overcome these things. God has promised to extend the kingdom of God around us that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the kingdom of God. 
God has said he will produce prosperity and happiness in our lives. It's a promise. Jesus says, I have come to bring you an an abundant life. David says in Psalm 4, God, you you have given me more joy than any of the people of the world at the height of their new harvest seasons, which was the time of big parties and celebrations and in agricultural communities, David says, you have given me more joy than the people of the world ever experience. Now, there's also the promise that in the midst of suffering, which is also promised because we're humans, all human beings face suffering. The, 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 the promise that Christians have is that there can be joy and perseverance in the midst of suffering. These are promises, and we could go on. And I think that if we were honest with ourselves, we would identify at least several of these areas where we would say, you know, I'm not sure that my faith is very strong in this ever being true for me. I'm not really sure if God is going to do this kind of work in me, in my family, in my workplace, in my church. And oftentimes, we laugh in unbelief. I mean, Sarah and Abraham have been trying in all of their various ways. Well, maybe we can have a child through another woman. Maybe we could let my wife become the wife of another man, and let's see how that works out. They had tried, and oftentimes, we keep trying, And we eventually kind of get worn out, and we get tired, and we stop trying. There's a reason why after these these hard experiences that Abraham and Sarah experienced, there's a reason why God reiterates his promise, and in fact, increases it, expands it, gets more detailed, because what happens to us is the same thing that happened to Abraham and Sarah. The obstacles appear too big. We get tired and we want to give up. And then we stop engaging in those types of things that Jesus says we must engage in. Ask for God to do what he has promised to do. I mean, it, it, I, have this, I have on the top of my my prayers, which I have written down, it's been this way since college. I have, these, I have the promises written out because it's easy to forget. But Jesus says in, 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 in the Gospel of John, if you ask anything according to my name, according to my will and purposes, it will be done. It will be done. And it's repeated throughout the Gospels in a number of places. And a reminder of what the word of God said. Just like Abram and Sarah who had no scripture, I mean, God talked to them personally. They needed reminder of this promise. I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. Okay, I can hang in there for another decade before I see you again. We have to keep the promises in our mind 
because we in our uninstructed humanity get worn out and disbelieving and we forget. It takes faith to bring about these things and renewal of of our minds in the word of God is what reminds us of the promises. So we, that's unbelief that leads to, to weariness, that leads to laziness, that leads to not experiencing the promises. Because these promises are made to the church. And we as a church, as individuals, can, can grab hold of those promises. Or we cannot. The other way that we don't experience God's promises is that we disagree with him on what his definitions are for righteousness and justice. We just flat out say, "Ah, you know, I don't agree with what the Bible says there. Okay. God is still going to work out his eternal purposes and plans and promises. What we're doing when we say that When we say, you know, I don't agree with the word of God here. What we're saying is, God, I love your promises. They're great, and they're really appealing. Who doesn't want eternal life? Who doesn't want abundant life? Who doesn't want all the great things? I mean, I was reading through through 2 Corinthians this week. It says, Paul says, God has prepared for us a future and a reality that is incomprehensible for us to even begin to think about. So the promises are great, but God is training us in righteousness and justice. So if we say to God, God, I really like your promises. Eternal life and the kingdom of God sounds great, but I have a few problems here with how you define righteousness. What we're saying is, okay, I'm going to step off. I'm going to step out of the process that God is working in me that will take me to a point where I can experience eternal life. If we start defining what righteousness and justice is and disregarding what God says is righteousness and justice, we're out, we're out of the training plan. We're out of half the calling because that's the calling. Here are these great promises, and I'm going to instruct you in the way of the Lord. We have these conclusions. I want to just conclude here. You know, we want to grow in our knowledge of, our fear of, our awe of, and our respect for God. You know, we have this picture of God as this, he's knee-jerk in his responses to evil. He's indiscriminate in his judgment. He's impatient in the face of unholiness. He's uncaring about the individual needs and hopes of people. But if you look at the training of Abraham and Sarah, and we've got one more week next week, If you look at God's training of them, it shows us a very different picture of how God works with us as individuals. He calls two people who were nothing and had nothing and made them great. He is looking out for the weak and the vulnerable. And all of us, if we acknowledge it, regardless of our social or economic status, and this is why, John, why the Gospel of Luke puts so much emphasis on this idea of rich and poor. He's rarely talking about money. What he's talking about is the condition of our spirits. Do we recognize that all of us are really poor? God is looking out for the poor in spirit. And then he calls and builds them. God patiently and gently instructed them, oftentimes through others, and over a very long period of time. 
You don't see this knee-jerk, vindictive judgment in the face of sin. They learn, there are heavy consequences that they face. As you might imagine, when you try to give your wife away to protect yourself, that's just going to cause some problems. Or if your wife has you sleep with a servant girl so you can have children through her. I mean, it's just going to cause some problems. And they experience those problems and the conflicts. But the calling kept them moving past the challenges that those natural consequences gave them. And when, he, and when he corrected, he actually never punished them. I mean, Sarah flat out lied to God's face. And he just said, no, you, you did lie to me. Acknowledge the truth, and he walks on. And God prospered them, even through their mistakes. Like, when, in both the times that Abraham gave his wife away, the, the kings that he gave his wife away to dumped a whole load of money and assets into Abraham and Sarah's laps. When God did bring retribution against the wicked, he had personal knowledge of the wickedness, which is why I think that the text shows that God and his angels actually visited that place. I think it says there's personal knowledge here. God recognized that rehabilitation was impossible. And God's judgment was grace because as we see throughout history in the scriptures and as we show in our, and even in our own history, the historians all acknowledge that complex societies don't last very long. And there are certain characteristics that when they are present and when they are sustaining just leads to the collapse of complex societies. We have the characteristics in our own society right now. Just a matter of time. Israel had the same ones later in their generations when the prophets were speaking to them. Evil grows. And if there's not a response to some prophetic word, judgment and destruction is necessary. And it's an act of grace. So God is, I just have been really impressed that God's training of Abraham and Sarah was gentle, was patient, was truthful. Let them suffer their own consequences. He kept coming back to the promise with them to keep them going on. And when he did need to execute justice, he did. He did. See, if we know God more, our faith will grow and we'll experience his promises. Yeah, we indeed are going to suffer, but the suffering we experience is, is it's what reveals our vulnerability and our need for the Lord. And God's call, the promises and the call for righteousness and justice is a path to the fulfillment really of God's, of God's promises for us and his good will for us. But in closing here, I think that, you know, we can look at Abraham and Sarah and we can say, you know, God spoke to them directly, but we have, we're in a better place than Abraham and Sarah because we're in a place where the promises to Abraham and Sarah have been fulfilled. The offspring has come. The offspring has come. And the off, the, our confidence in that offspring is shown. Just like Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, if we do not believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, 
Our faith is in vain, and we are of all people the most to be pitied. Jesus Christ has raised from the dead as a man never to die again. Is anything too difficult for God? He brought Sarah's dead life back from the dead so that she could give life. That's an imagery of the gospel right there because Jesus was brought back from the dead. Nothing is impossible with God. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the, just the, 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 the insight into the lives of Abraham and Sarah that you've given to us in your word. God, we're thankful for the generosity and graciousness that you showed them. We're thankful, Lord God, for the generosity and graciousness you show us. God, I, I pray that you'd help us renew our mind in your character and who you are and how you work with us as individuals. Lord, let us latch on to that promise that you no longer take our sins into account. We're no longer need, we no longer need to worry about you judging us and condemning us as you did Sodom and Gomorrah because we are in the Lord. We are in Christ. And Father, for those in, in here who may not know you in that way, we pray that, that you would help them to see your character, your nature, your goodness, and your promises, and your justice. In your son's name we pray. Amen.